0: Hey everyone, this is Vahid again from Nepal's Podcast, and today's guest is Steve Kraus from Bessemer Venture Partners. Steve is a partner at Bessemer's Healthcare Practice, where he's made investments in and holds seats on the boards of some of the most successful companies in this space, including Bright Health, Ginger, Hinge Health, AspenRx, and most recently, Folks. He's also well-known for his podcast, A Healthy Dose, where he's brought on major names in the industry like Andy Slavitt and Scott Gottlieb. So each year, Steve and his team publish their healthcare predictions for the next 12 months, Bessemer's 2021 predictions just came out, and on this episode, I got the chance to sit down with Steve to chat about the story behind our annual predictions and dive into what 2021 might have in store for us, from Biden care to interoperability finally moving forward.
1: Feels like uh, 2020 was a long year. I said we were a little late on our predictions, which we try to do every year right around JP Morgan. I think there really wasn't a J.P. Morgan this year healthcare conference, as we all know. And frankly, it felt until the Biden administration was, you know, we were all certain that they were incited, right? Uh, I felt like 2020, I say, was like in 385 days this year rather than 365 because I didn't think we were onto a new calendar year until January 20th was actually real and Biden was in office. And thank God, and not just for our country, but also, <laughs> frankly, I think for healthcare policy, which we'll probably talk about today. And I think it's, Honestly, better for entrepreneurs. So I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that.
0: For sure. Yeah. Even today, I anytime I'm entering the date, 2021 still feels a little weird. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like, are, like, are we really there? Usually that's like January 2nd. If people still write checks, you know, or whatever.
1: You know, you're always like, oh, January 2nd, 2020, oh, 2021. Now it's like, you know, it took to January 21st to really like be confident about writing 2021. But we're here. We're here. That's <laughs> we good. made it.
0: Yeah, we made it. Let's hope we get through. The other end with a vaccine, right? (laughs) You know, people taking it. One way we often like to start off the podcast is by asking our guests what they want to be when they grow up. And Mm -hmm. listening to your podcast, so for our listeners, Steve is one of the co-hosts of a healthy dose. You should definitely check it out. I heard that you want to go into journalism at some point. So what happened? (laughs) Yeah, well, I really did. I
1: actually wrote professionally when I was in high school. And part of college, professionally being kind of a strainer for local newspapers. I actually had summer internships at I, I grew up in Hartford, Connecticut. So at my hometown newspaper, the Hartford Current, and a couple wrote professionally for other papers along the way. I actually went to Yale and my dad will tell the story. Like the first time I visited Yale, I was like, dad, we have to go to the Yale Daily News first. And the Yale Daily News <laughs> is the oldest college newspaper. I personally think it's one of the best. It's produced a long lineage of really great journalists. And frankly, other types of civic leaders. But really, it's a daily newspaper, really good, I think, for a college newspaper. And like, that was my first stop in visiting Yale. My dad will always tell that story. And it was kind of purposeful. Like I had a vision that that's what I was going to do. And my first three, two and a half years in college, I literally wrote every single night, probably four nights, five nights a week for the daily news, which is not necessarily easy because you do your work and I was a bit of a dork. So I tried to do my work well. And then you'd like go, you know, do the research on the story, including talking to people and then you write, right. And then you edit, you know, with your editor. So, you know, I would often stay there until 10, 11 o'clock at night and then do it all over again the next day. And I loved it. I didn't have much of a social life as my friends will always say. I usually would like lock my door. And a couple of times my best friend would kick down my door literally in college, but uh, good, friend. good friend, yeah, well, he actually is a good friend. He tried to keep me light. And I worked in the summer on newspapers, but I actually, in the process of doing that, I kind of lost the love of writing to deadline. Okay. Like I liked a lot about journalism. And I actually think there's some corollaries to venture capital. You know, I love talking to people, I loved hearing their stories, their origin stories, why they're doing what they're doing, why they're so focused on a certain issue versus, you know, the other side, if you will, when it was, you know, politics or what have you. And I love the investigative part of it, partly just knowing how to conduct a conversation that's so someone trusts you, knowing how to ask the right question at the right time so you get the most out of the the subject. I mean, there are some similar things to like due diligence, right, in venture capital, but writing to deadline was tough. Journalism sometimes can be who, what, when, where, why, reverse triangle, and like that got old. And I'll never forget, I was, for one paper, I actually got to write a bunch of bylines for the Harvard Current, actually the sports section. I also love sports. And uh, so I'd shadow a guy, oftentimes it was guys at this time in journalism, before I had to write a story on every time I for a new sport. And this one was like auto racing, which I had never done before. It was like sort of small car auto racing up in northwest Connecticut. And so we were riding in his like Yugo. I think he was smoking a cigarette. So I had my window down. It was a summer, because the summer internship. And he was like, kid, you got too much talent to be in this industry. Like, you don't want to do this every night. And I was like, sort of like one of those moments where I would kind of like lost the love of writing a deadline. And then this guy who was like pretty well known, this newspaper as a good sports writer was like, you don't want to do this. And so I sort of just decided not to do it, you know, in my junior year in college. And I honestly had no idea what I was going to do because that was like my tunnel vision. Now, the only thing I'll say in, in retrospect, that time you really couldn't build a brand. There were no talking heads as much because the 24-7 news cycle didn't exist. There weren't the platforms on digitally, right? Because this was back in the 90s, right? You couldn't build a digital brand, a brand on Twitter. Fast forward today, I might have had a different view of it. But back then, that was the view. It was like you're writing for your local newspaper, which by the way was kind of a dying breed, and you didn't see a way to build a broader brand. So, anyways, I don't regret it, but I still love journals. I still really respect it as the fourth rail. Like, I think what the last administration tried to do to a journalists was bring it a crime. Like, because if you yeah, don't have the most source of truth, you got a real issue to hold people accountable. So, I still have a deep appreciation for journalists in my heart. And even when I the story doesn't go the way I want it to
0: go, I still appreciate what they do. <laughs> that's awesome. And it's cool because it seems like in a way, everything you loved about journalism, you still get to do with the podcast, right? You're like learning about the origin stories, you're getting to talk to people. Yeah. And it's your own distribution channel. I yeah. love the smoker voice impression, by the way. I hope we hear a little bit more about it on the podcast. Yeah.
1: It was very, it's one of the, you know, you had those
0: moments growing up. That was one I'll always remember. Awesome. So I want to jump right to healthcare at Bessemer before we dive into the 2021 predictions. Maybe you could just tell me a little bit about the team and what the focus has been for you guys. Part of that, something I'd be interested in learning about is the publication. So in addition to the predictions each year, you also released the 10 Laws of Healthcare. When I got to Wharton, that was one of the top recommended readings for me. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're trying to accomplish with some of these publications and just getting the word out there about your predictions?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'll start with the team. Bessemer has been around for 110 years, basically. We're the oldest venture capital firm. And we're very diverse in terms of where we invest. We invest everything from consumer, fintech, healthcare, which is what I focus all my time on and my team does. We're focused a lot in cloud computing. We have a really good effort in cloud computing across a bunch of different verticals. And we're even focused on space technology now. So we say we're not only a global firm, we're we're an extraterrestrial firm (laughs) nowadays because of the great work my partner, David Cowan, has done in that area, which is super exciting. So it's a great place to be intellectually and to see innovators and entrepreneurs across, frankly, the entire economy and globally because we have offices in India, Israel, we have a big presence in Europe, Boston, we're on base, and the healthcare team is based, New York and Silicon Valley, and frankly, investments across the globe. So that's awesome. But I get to do healthcare, which is what I love. I love learning about consumer businesses and space tech businesses, but I personally have a mission and a passion about healthcare. And so it's great to work in a broader firm but focus on healthcare. And as such, while we're broad, we manage currently $5 billion of capital, about $2 billion in our current fund. Because we focus in a lot of areas, you know, we actually have pretty small teams. So the healthcare team is really three folks. Myself, my colleague, Andrew Houdin, who was a Penn undergrad and Warren grad. So there you go. Just like uh, me, this is great. Yeah, <laughs> and was in the H- uh, HCP program, right? Is that what it's? HCM. HCM, sorry, yeah. okay. The infamous June, is that her name? Yes, that is June. Yes, I've yes, heard a lot <laughs> about her. So And and lots of great graduates in that program. And then my colleague, Morgan Cheatham, who uh, was a Brown undergrad and pre-med, and so wanted to join Bessemer right out of undergrad and has risen up in our firm. And so it's a small team, but hopefully we're nimble and fast and mighty. And so that's how we do things at Bessemer. It's not like we have a huge team. We've got a set of professionals that spend 100% of their time, as I say, kind of eat, sleep, breathing healthcare and really focused on that sector alone. And then we could talk later, which we'll talk about in the predictions. We also, there's really two ways to do the venture business. People know you could be reactive, right? You can get a deal across the transom from a friend or a banker or another fund. We've done some of those, but we really try to be proactive and what we call road mapping. So thinking about as Wayne Gretzky said, you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where the puck's going to be, you know, in hockey. And that's what we try to do at Bessemer. It's like, okay, where do we think the tectonic shifts are going to happen within healthcare? let's lay out some theses and then let's go after those theses and meet every single entrepreneur and company in those spaces, try to get smart and figure out, one, do we still believe in theses after doing more work? And two, which is the company or companies that we want to bet in in that thesis? So that road mapping process is ingrained to who we are best. We're not just within healthcare, but across all the different industry segments that we do. And because we're a broad firm, we also spend a lot of time presenting those roadmaps to our partners So that when we bring a deal forward, say, in virtual care, it's not the first time they've heard about virtual care. They've heard about it for
0: several years before that, when we were talking about the road mapping work that we were doing. Given that you are a small team, how are you thinking about splitting your time between maybe evaluating and trying to look into what would be next versus supporting your portfolio companies? I think it varies by what level
1: you're at. My time in particular is probably, I'd say, 50% on the portfolio. And supporting our existing portfolio companies, including board meetings and speaking weekly with entrepreneurs. And then I'd say it's about forty percent new deals and valuing in new spaces. Right? I think the two kind of go hand in hand. And that we're seeing new companies meeting with new entrepreneurs. And then sort of ten percent on fund level work. But for a person who's coming into venture capital, right, as a out of business school or out of undergrad, I think it's really most of your work is on. Thinking about the spaces that we want to go be in and creating that research and that work to support that case. And then also going out and just really pounding the pavement to meet as many great entrepreneurs as you can. Um, and then supporting the work, diligence work that we do on companies that we really want to try to convince
0: to, for them, those entrepreneurs take capital from Bessemer. Got uh, Yeah. Lots, lots of hustling for sure. <laughs> lots of hustle. Yeah. So before we get into the productions, one thing I want to talk about is how this all started. So what was the inspiration behind releasing an annual set of predictions for the year?
1: Yeah, well, I, you asked about the content work, and I think the content work is really related to the roadmap. Um, and actually, there's a great story at Bessemer History, where it was actually the fellow who recruited me into the firm, who was my boss a while back ago, who the first person out of undergrad or business school that they brought into our firm is a fellow named David Cowan. David has gone on to be a super successful investor, done cloud computing, done security, like as now doing the, he's doing one doing space tech. So really has shown developer tools. Like he's just, his aperture for an intellect to be able to shift between roadmaps is really impressive. He's doing quantum computing now and, and made some investments in that space. So nice. just a really impressive person. But he came out of, I think it was HBS and he, Bessemer was a lot smaller back then. It was sort of a cottage industry and a cottage firm, maybe like four partners. And David was the first wow. junior hire, And they said to David, go figure out a roadmap. <laughs> David didn't really even know what that did. So he went away. This was in the like early 90s, mid 90s, I think. And David came back and his roadmap, I think, the first one he came up with was like virtual. It wasn't even called roadmap. Go figure out a space you want to go look in. And his first roadmap or area was like virtual traveling exhibits, like exhibit booths something like that. And they're like, no, 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 that's not a good one. And that's not, that's not a venture back skilled business. They're like, go back again, do much more research, talk to industry experts. Because I think he had created you know, his own head rather than going to talk to industry folks. The second that he came out with was the internet, basically. Like, this was pre the internet. And he was like, I think we need to be investing in all things that power the internet. And, like, honestly, it was like the first time that the senior guys at the firm had heard that. And David had put together a really compelling case. So sometimes you get roadmaps right, sometimes you get it wrong. David got the second one really right, right? And that led to a lot of success for him and for Bessemer. But I think that road mapping really leads to our sort of sense that we want to develop expertise in area and. And when we develop those expertise, one of the things that we want to do is, um, for our own benefit, but also for the benefit of the broader community entrepreneurs, is is publish that expertise, right? And so that goes to the content generation that you asked about, the 10 laws of healthcare, right? And I'm not the first one. If folks are interested in cloud, they should go on our Atlas site. I think it's bvp.com backslash Atlas and look at the work that we've done in the cloud space and SaaS, right? It's amazing. And my partner, Byron, has done like, Gold standard work in developing content, including partnering with Forbes, where we now run the Forbes Cloud 100 together, right? Where we select the 100 most promising private cloud companies. So, I think the content generation is is both helpful for us because it shows that we are deep in areas, right? It demonstrates industry domain expertise, and I think you know nowadays there's lots of money poured into digital health from not just firms that have been in for a long time like us or NEA or Van Rock or Oak, but like Honestly, every Tom, Dick, and Harry with a venture shingle is investing in digital health nowadays. So one way to to differentiate yourself when capital, frankly, is green and abundant is to actually show that you have deep domain expertise. And selfishly, that's what the content does. Hopefully, people benefit from it right, in the community. And entrepreneurs, we, oh, I didn't thought about that. That's a great insight. Let me go think about that, how it applies to my business. There's a twofold proposition there, right? And so then the predictions, I think they just came out of, Set a long time ago. I think it was my former colleague Ambar Bhattacharya, who's now at Maverick Capital, also a UPenn grad, although he went to HBS. I had to he drop got, that in. <laughs> yeah, he and I decided that coming out of JP Morgan, we should just share our thoughts on what we heard. And I think that was, I forgot how many years ago that was, but that was a, sort of like a hey, we should just like take notes during JPM, all the meetings we have, because and you have endless meetings at JPM, which are really interesting. Let's like write down like key takeaways and let's share them. And so, you know, credit to him. I, you know, we decided to do that and that was the first predictions, and then the ball got rolling. And now my colleague Morgan is like a master at content creation. And, you know, most of the work is is
0: his touch, but I try to add to some thoughts as well. So that's kind of why we do it. Yeah, and the community definitely appreciates it, even thinking from my own perspective. Some of the predictions that I might think to myself, oh, yeah, that makes sense, of course. I appreciate how you're able to outline exactly like the drivers behind that. And I think to people who are even experienced in healthcare, There's some things like, say, value-based care is coming. We'll talk about that in a second. People think about it at a high level, but they don't think about what that entails per se. So being able to just kind of go through that and dissect it, I think is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah, Well,
1: thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. There's so many predictions now. It's hard to make them unique and we try to make them unique and
0: valuable, but I appreciate that. So I'm an impatient person by nature. So I kind of want to jump right into these predictions. Let's do it. Um, do you want to just quickly may introduce the predictions and we can go through them at a high level first and then one by one, wherever you think is most exciting.
1: Yeah, sure. You want me to walk through our predictions? Should we go one by one or we should just try rattle them off? You can rattle them off and then maybe we dive in. Yeah, I think um, number one, we said Biden care. <laughs> Biden care brings more value-based experimentation to healthcare. Number two, the COVID-19 pandemic removes the scarlet letter from diagnostics, which I think is a... Actually, an interesting one to talk about. Number three: advanced practice and ancillary providers take center stage. The idea that we think uh, more people are going to be practicing at the top of their license, and frankly, I think digital health allows that. Um, number four: commoditization of telemedicine unlocks holistic virtual care. Number five: healthcare appreciates finally and meets the unique needs of the underserved. Prediction number six: the digitization and automation of the healthcare back office continues. Seven is kind of a Tip of the hat. Investors double down on healthcare technology and miss robust exit environment. And then number eight is COVID-19 will force big pharma
0: to permanently revamp their clinical trial operations. Nice. So let's talk about number one first, Biden care. So in the predictions, you outlined a couple of points around what this could mean. And you know, obviously one area that's been highlighted is value-based care. So one thing that I was kind of reacting to is. The idea of value-based care has always been pretty experimental, right? CMMI has kind of pushed out these various pilot programs. How do you see this evolving? And what is the role that some of these value-based care programs might have during this administration?
1: Yeah, I have to say, I think the work, I don't say this often, but the one place I might give the Trump administration credit is that they continue to push innovative policies out of CMMI. And I was really worried about that when the shift happened from Obama to Trump. In fact, there was a time there when Tom Price was a fleeting second as HHS secretary that he almost kboshed things like bundled payments and other innovations. By the way, guess do you know what Tom Price was previously in his career? What was he? Orthopedic surgeon. Oh, look at that. Orthopedic surgeons like fee-for-service billing.
0: <laughs> yeah, they they make good money off that. <laughs> they
1: make good money off that. I mean, I, I'm saying that in general, there are some orthopedic surgeons who have done a good job on value-based uh, payment models, but there's a reason Tom Price, given his origin story, let's use that term again, didn't like innovation, but I was really excited to see him use a jet and then get kicked out and then SEMA come in and continue the work. So, and I think it's important because remember, I believe there are three things that may help us bend the cost curve. And they're the only three arrows that you have in our, whatever you put the arrows in, you know, when you're shooting uh, archery, which is digitization of our industry, which we're only a decade into, consumerization of our industry, and then changing the incentive structure, right? Those are the only three things that we haven't tried to date that I think really has a chance. And so, you know, changing the incentive structure, moving from a fee for service system to a fee for value system is not easy. It takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of investment, it takes changing culture, changing billing systems, changing the way you think about longitudinal care, right? right. How you measure outcomes. So The reason that regulatory policy consistency is important is because entrepreneurs started working on this. Companies like Landmark and Oak Street and Aspire—they started working on this, you know, five to seven years ago. But if in the middle of that, the rug was pulled out from underneath them by a new administration, that'd be really tough. So the consistency of the regulatory framework is really important for us actually trying to make value-based reality. And that just doesn't happen within a four-year term or even an eight-year term of a president. So, anyways, I'm really excited that Obamacare, Trump, and Biden all have supported this type of innovation value-based. Now, how does it play out? I actually see, I think kidney is a great, chronic kidney disease is a great area. This is an area that's been ruled by fee-for-service driven duopoly, DaVita and Fresenius. Richard Nixon, of all people, years ago, passed a law that basically allowed end-stage renal disease, dialysis, the treatment for ESRD, to be covered by the federal budget, by Medicare, regardless of what your age was. That law has turned into 1% of federal budget spend on ESRD. That's crazy. That's more than NIH, NASA, and the Department of Homeland Security that what we spend on that together. And just for reference, we spend 2% on education out of the federal budget. So one procedure for one indication in one disease state in healthcare, because of the incentives have led to 1% of the federal budget being applied to it. So something's got to change, right? on that, and frankly, it's not good outcomes, right? Because what happens Patients upstream don't know that they have CKD, even though it's really well-staged. It's actually very easy to measure CKD to stage you. And at the end of the day, they crash in the hospital and then they go to dialysis in a fee-for-service system. There's a much better way. There's a way which the government identified through things like CKCC, the Chronic Kidney Care Collaborative. they also have a piece in 21st Century Cares Act, which I'll talk about, which is basically now pushing incentives more towards a value-based model for CKD, right? For managing patients upstream, for identifying patients who, if unmanaged, would progress to dialysis and would probably crash in dialysis, but instead getting ahead of it, there's a very clear measure, EFGR by a test, very easy to do. And then you can stage them and you can manage them appropriately. It's a perfect example of population health and value-based care. And finally, because of the government's good work, now you see companies like Strive, Somatis, like Cricket, like Monogam, even you see Davida and Ferzinius, the fat, happy Duopolis who live off the fee-for-service system, actually trying to counteract with their own value-based care systems. They haven't done it until forced to, right? And to your point, now you see commercial insurers doing contracts with these value-based players pushed by the government. So I think it's a beautiful example of how the government can nudge the industry to actually look at things and pay for things in a different way.
0: Uh, And do you see any role for maybe during this administration for it to move beyond, say, vertical by vertical? Because kidney care being one area, I worked on oncology care model in the past life for a little bit. These programs are, they're structured pretty well at some level, but at the same time, it does add a lot of extra work for providers to so keep track of what's going on and like build a different structure around tracking those metrics. So do you see a point where maybe it moves away from, we're going to focus on this kind of condition to that one to a little bit more broadly, let's just push industry towards value-based care with these three, four or five principles.
1: Is your question whether there's gonna be like a holistic like the primary care is the primary care provider taking full
0: cap on total cost of care for all conditions? Is that what you're asking? <laughs> that would be ideal. <laughs> but yeah, pretty much. basically, are we going to start to maybe see some things even coming out CMMI that pushes us away from thinking about just one area at a time and a little bit more broadly? It's a really good question. I think, and by the way, in the value-based area is not the only
1: place you see this. I talk about this, like healthcare is like an accordion. It moves between, you know, specialized vendors, ecology, kidney, COPD, GI, and getting best in class, you know, Hinge Health, one of our portfolio companies, MSK, behavioral, to shrinking the accordion with like a one-stop shop approach, which by the way is what Teladongo wants to do, the merger of Livongo and Teladoc in virtual care. Is like, we'll manage it all. I'm skeptical of the we'll manage it all, whether it be for virtual care or to your point, case for value based care. Because frankly, we are in virtual care, we're like in inning three now, you know, probably catapulted by COVID. But in value based care, we're not even out of the batter's box. I mean, like, think about how many successful value based care companies there have been in America. Not a lot, right? And that's partly because we're in the early innings. So I really worry that your push to try to, really get to the end stage, which could be interesting, right? It's like, you manage it all, would just overwhelm the system. And so I think the better approach is what's happening is like, let's pick the big verticals. The specialists really know the workflows, know the pathways, know the care models, know the outcomes that need to be measured. Let's kind of crawl, walk, run this, right? And let's do that in a thoughtful way. By the way, you see that in the way the risk contracts are structured, right? It's often first to PEPM per engage per member. Then you move to kind of a PMPM, which is a lower rate, plus a gain share. Then you move yeah. to full capitation. So I, we can't get to the promised land where you're outlining today. It's not going to happen. I think that might happen in 2000. That's a prediction for 2041, not 21. You
0: know, yeah, 20
1: years away, that's, that's kind of scary. <laughs> I mean, you're moving a monolith. It takes time. I mean maybe it's 10 years but it's it's a long time away to what you're at and by the way I still think we can make a lot of great progress I think it's these care management companies that empower the specialists you said a lot of specialists don't have the the money and the infrastructure to make the investments you need to be, make to do the transition from fee for service to value and I think that's why you see companies like Strive and Cricket and and other companies like Aspire and in palliative care that they're providers extension providers and their care management services right that work with the actual providers themselves to administer the value based care model both from a care provision
0: as well as from sort of a, an actual execution and payment. Exactly. I do want to move on to the second prediction you had, and that's around the Scarlet letter, moving it from diagnostics. Can you speak a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is with an investor hat on. I mean, first of all, let's put Theranos aside, but let's come back. (laughs) That, That there's a reference to the Scarlet letter there, obviously, but like historically diagnostics has been a really tough place to invest. It's a little bit, it is like a medical device. It's regulated like a medical device. And I always compare devices and diagnostics to biotech. You know, We do biotech at best. my colleague, Andrew Houdin, does it. So if anybody has a great biotech company, please reach out to us. But you know, you think about biotech, what do you need to do in order for investors and entrepreneurs to ultimately see liquidity and exit, right? You really got to prove, you got to develop the underlying platform or identify the target. You got to prove in animals that that works scientifically. You probably have to do a study in man. These days, maybe not to get public, by the way. Um, <laughs> And maybe have to prove that it works at least in like a phase two study. And then at that time, it's kind of an other people's money game, an OPM game, as we say in the investing business. It is take the company public and let the capital markets do the rest, right? And then ultimately, it's probably even be acquired by a pharma company or a larger biotech company for them to do the regulatory, the commercial, the reimbursement, all the stuff that is challenging. So biotech, that's what you have to do. You know, fast forward to digital health, there's none of the scientific risk, clinical risk. It's like a commercial game, right? If you think about diagnostics and devices, you got to do it all until you get paid as an entrepreneur investor, right? You got to do the preclinical work, the scientific discovery work. You got to do the development work. You got to prove that you can get reimbursed. You got to get regulatory approval. You got to then go prove they can sell it before anybody will consider taking you public or buying you. And so it's really hard. And then on top of that, the Theranos debacle. And I think... Really unfortunate timing because I do think there's been lots of advances in nanotechnologies and actually delivery modalities that allow point of care technologies to be real, and frankly, to those are lower cap X models often too, and makes a lot of sense from a delivery perspective as we've seen see COVID, right? Of how important diagnostics are, and I think the diagnostics generally prior to COVID have been a tough place to invest, and I think yeah. what we said move, remove the scar letter. It's not only a reference to Theranos. But it's also a reference to just how challenging it's been to make money in that space. But now I think you see things like, wow, diagnostics are a really important tool in our kit. And you see new—you know—you see some of the liquid biome companies, liquid like biopsy companies getting prominence, right? Exact scientists and what they do with ColaGuard and colon testing, right? And you've got Freenome, you've got Grail. There are some promising companies in the diagnostic space. And then you have some of the digital health companies that are doing diagnostic testing at home, like Everly Well and Let's Get Checked. And I think you've finally seen a little bit of a resurgence in what it was a space that was, frankly, a lot of skeletons
0: in the graveyard.
1: So we're really excited about that. I think you're going to see a renewed interest in that space.
0: And how do you think these companies are doing in terms of building trust with providers? If I even think of something like, say, 23andMe, gives you a high level genomic sequence, right? But if you go to provider and they require sequencing your genome, they're going to do their own thing. And I guess one value I see to diagnostics at home. Is that you could reduce the cost, you could get it done ahead of time. But then if you go to your provider and then redo the tests, you know, that's an inefficiency there. So do you feel like they're doing enough today to build that trust with providers?
1: Yeah, I think like anything in healthcare, there are two schools of thought and go to market. There's the B2B to C approach, which is what I think the exact sciences, the gnomes, the grails of the world are, which are really they're doing the enterprise sale and not only doing a lot of the thought leader work and medical advisory board work and frankly, going through the whole regulatory and reimbursement. And there, I think those companies are doing that. The direct to consumer companies are different, right? And there's a bunch of companies now, not just in testing, but also frankly, in care, which we can talk about that are going direct to consumer first. At the end of the day, it's your question is an insightful one. I think ultimately, they're going to most of them are going to have to come back to and will come back to the establishment and have a strategy to get reimbursed by payers and have a strategy potentially to sell through the as-is medical establishment, i.e. providers. But at first, I think they're going the consumer route to build a company and to build demand. And then I think they're going to backwards engineer into that. So we'll see. I think it's too early to know know, what the as-is establishment's reaction to a lot of these DTC
0: healthcare companies are, not just in testing, but in other areas too. So just moving on to the next prediction now, you know, we're talking about making sure that providers practice at the top of their license. And this goes beyond just doctors and nurses, but bringing in, say, the pharmacists, bringing in other ancillary services. So what are your thoughts there, especially on the pharmacy side? There's been a lot of talk about making sure that pharmacists are being utilized, that they're able to interact more with patients and guide them beyond just, here's your script and let me answer a quick question about your insurance. Yeah, what role do you see them playing in the years to come?
1: Yeah, I think it's pharmacists. And we'll talk about pharmacists. I think it's NPs, PAs. I think it's social workers. I think it's mental health coaches. We have a physician shortage for the most part, right? Actually, pharmacists is unique. Prior to COVID, there actually wasn't a pharmacist shortage. It was actually the fashion where people are some of the high, most highly trained, lowest paid, and a large abundance of them, right? Now, with COVID, and we've seen this through our investment in Aspen Health Rx, there's a real demand for pharmacists because people have appreciated what you said is that they can do other things than stand behind a counter and fill your script. They can provide medication therapy management. They can actually do vaccines. They can do testing. In some states, they can actually practice at lower levels, right? Provide medical advice. And so I think as we have more of these virtual care models, as we have an increasing shortage of doctors, you know, in our country, like, and we have increasing costs, right? I think leveraging these different practitioners of medicine to do things at the top of their license is going to be, there's going to be more acknowledgement that quality doesn't suffer as long as it's done well. And I bet there's probably going to be more regulatory relaxation of laws to allow practitioners other than MDs to do that. And so
0: that's going to create more capacity, which should presumably lower costs. And so do you see this then taking off outside of value-based care models? Because Within value-based care model, I can see the incentive structures playing out really nicely. But outside of that, you're asking the pharmacist or whoever else might be to do additional work. And then there's the whole reimbursement question around that.
1: Oh, yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the things that's happening is things that exist in other parts. This is always true. I always say healthcare is like 10 to 20 years behind. Marketplace businesses exist all across the rest of the kind of DoorDash, Uber, Lyft. We can name a bazillion of them, Right. I think you're going to see marketplace businesses in healthcare. You do already. Wheel, Aspen, R- Wheel, and Physician Side, Aspen Health Rx. By the way, telemedicine started as a kind of a marketplace business. Most doctors who are doing telemedicine were doing it on the side at nights, during lunch. I mean, it was yeah. that's the way teledoc and those models kind of started. So I think it's already existed for a while in MD space. And I think you're going to see it in other ancillary providers. So I think that works in the fee for service system. I agree with you. Value-based, it aligns perfectly because it allows for lower cost care extension beyond the visit in the four walls of the hospital, the four walls of the doctor office. It's perfect, right? It's extenders who can check on chronically ill patients in their home and outside of the hospital setting. Awesome for value-based model. But I also think it works in a fee-for-service model. You know, Presumably, a marketplace model should drive down costs and also should provide greater flexibility in terms of supply, demand, and the hours by which the supply can match the demand. Because as we know, most doctor's offices are eight to five. So I think there a is, I know, let's be clear, I don't think in-person doctors are going away, but I just think this is a new form of medicine that will be practiced.
0: Definitely. I do want to jump around a little bit to make sure we cover this topic. And one of your predictions was a renewed focus on underserved patient populations. And one thing I really loved within that prediction was kind of around how we talk about this area, right? So when we talk about, say, social determinants of health, maybe that's in the right language per se. It's maybe more acknowledging that there are systemic forms of racism that are causing issues within our healthcare. So for our listeners, can you just highlight some of this? Highlight how maybe we haven't been talking about some of these issues the right way?
1: Yeah, I think social determinants of health, and we sort of say we should talk about social and structural determinants of health. Like social determinants of health implies that If only someone had access to transportation and to deal with food insecurity or environmental factors, like they might have asthma and might live in a place that doesn't have filters, right? Proper filtration of the air. Like if we solve those, that folks with those conditions are going to get better. But what we're saying is actually there are, and as we've seen, thank God our country's finally talking about, there are just structural inequities that exist in our system and have existed forever. And so that's true about folks who are black or brown, right, and how they're cared for. That's true about our company, Folks Health, <laughs> yeah, which focuses on the queer community. I mean, like, if you're a member of the queer community, LGBTQ community, and you live in certain parts of the country, actually a lot of the country, maybe save for some of the progressive metro cities, like, not only is there not actually a center that is geared towards your community and your needs, but frankly, the as this system, there's a lot of isms going on, right, and yeah. a lot of structural isms, and frankly, Bigotry and ignorance, and that knowingly or unknowingly that the is medical establishment is portraying upon this community when they deal with them, and what does that do? That turns that community off from ever wanting to go to the doctor because it doesn't feel just, right? It feels inhumane. It feels like they're not being identified as an individual and who they are. And so I just think our, you see now companies like CityBlock, which is focused on the Medicaid population and really understands the dynamics of the communities that it's dealing with, companies like Folks. Who is focused on the LGBT community. Live Chair, a company that my colleague Morgan, who himself comes from that community, has identified, which is like providing, using the barbershop to provide healthcare, meeting people where they are. Really interesting idea. And so you see ready responders, which is going into the communities, almost like an EMS, but an EMS with more dignity and more care and going into communities to help these folks and address some of the structural frankly, walls and discrimination that's been built up. So I think that's how we think about this. I love social determinants of health. Frankly, I was late to acknowledging its importance, personally, and that's one of my misses. But I think they're really important. And they clearly affect people's health. But I
0: also think we have to acknowledge that the sort of schisms are much deeper than that. Definitely. And one thing I want to also highlight, they mentioned in the article is one criticism sometimes of people who are trying to build in this area is that's too niche. Right, that may you're targeting too small of a population for it to be successful, but as you rightfully call out, healthcare is massive. Right, we're talking four trillion dollars. This is even a small niche. One, obviously, from a humanitarian point of view, it helps a lot of people. But two, it's a small slice, maybe, but a massive pie. So for people who are interested in going to this area, this is obviously something that one serves a lot of people, but two also has a lot of potential upside.
1: Totally. Yeah, I think Jonathan. Bush said it right, like, you know, healthcare is $4 trillion, but it's more like a thousand $4 billion industries, or maybe it's $250, $10 billion. I mean, it's massive. So people might think folks is like a humanitarian investment, not at all. Like, I think it's going to do a lot of good. I'm really proud to be part of that cause, right? I think it's been far too long that that community hasn't had care provider direct right exactly at them. But it's also 10 to 20% of our population, depending on what demographic you are part of. And that's really large. (laughs) And they're a very digitally savvy community. And so I think there is a way to provide best-in-class care virtually that folks are striving to do. And so I think it's going to be a great investment as well as a great mission-driven company.
0: And do you think these companies are going to move beyond, say, just primary care? Because the way I'm viewing a lot of this right now is it's a front door to... Help these communities on some of the most pressing things that they might be facing. But as we move on to like more specialized care, do you see them maybe partnering with other companies that are working in those spaces or maybe building out the capabilities themselves? So for it's sure. Like- I think they're going to get into family planning.
1: Obviously, depending on your transition, there are surgeries, gender affirming surgeries. And so, folks is not going to do that, at least not now, right? They're going to partner with best in class institutions to do that. And so, I think there, there will be a tie into other parts of the healthcare ecosystem beyond just providing primary care around HRT, sexual health. We probably do family planning ourselves, but folks will be working with the as-is system, as I call it, just like One Medical does
0: too, by the way. Yeah, for sure. So I know we're getting close to time. If you kind of look across these eight predictions, if you are talking to an entrepreneur today, what would you say are made a top two that they really need to be thinking about in order to really succeed? Yeah.
1: So I always say for entrepreneurs, so let's talk about areas that I think are interesting, and where I'd be looking to start a company. And then if I were to start a company, what would I be focused on? Right? So the things you need to nail, and I think I'll say three rather than two. Okay. So I've said this since I got into digital health, which was like, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And we talked about it. Regulatory framework is important. When Obamacare was passed, it was a as Biden said, it was a big effing deal. He was caught in a live mic, and he was true. It was not only a big deal, it was a big bill. It was big, you like pages and pages. I always say to entrepreneurs, go read the regulatory framework, because in some little line is like your earlier conversation is billions of dollars of market opportunity. Yeah. And so one that I'm really interested in right now is, and it was rounded out by COVID, and it's actually in one of our mm-hmm. laws, we reference it around digitization is, right when COVID and I had been working with the CMS administrator to work on this with other VCs and entrepreneurs is this idea of interoperability. And this is the idea that the federal government poured $40 billion into health systems and providers to adopt EMRs, electronic medical records. turns out the vendors and the stakeholders who bought that wanted those systems to be closed. And so we spent all this money as a government for people to buy this technology, which I think, as we talked about, is really important. Like I think it actually was fundamentally transformative for our industry, even though people poo-poo with EMRs and call them sucky. It was important, created a turned history from and locked digital. But one of the issues is they were closed systems. And so the government, after a while, realized that and said, Whoa, we put all this money in to have these systems be closed. No, no, just like every other, or not every other, but a lot of other modern systems and other industries, they should be open. You should be able to write APIs to them. There should be developers who can build software on top of them. We should be able to share data. Patients should have access to their data, right? By the way, today, still today, 70%, 70% of medical communications are done by the facts. That's yeah. absurd, right? So, like, let's open these things up. And so the government worked a long time on these interoperability laws, which are a set of carrots and sticks to make sure that health systems, providers, payers, all share share data and that the underlying operating systems, the EPICS, CERNERS, Allscripts, Athena's are open and not closed. Big piece of legislation. Turned out it dropped right when COVID hit. So it got completely drowned out, honestly, yeah. even among healthcare junkies like myself. So I just would encourage people to go look at that and read that legislation because I think... We've already seen a lot of money has been made on the first wave of digitization, you know, the EMRs. And I think a lot of money and really great companies will be made on the second wave of digitization. And I think it's really important also, not just, not just about making money. I think it's really important for our system. So my first piece of advice is read the regulation. Now, as you go to whatever company you choose to build in healthcare, to me, it's like, we talk about this in our healthcare laws, make sure your team is bilingual. And what we mean by that is make sure you have healthcare expertise and tech expertise. And I think that's really important. You want to have both, okay? So recruit a great team that has a sort of a patchwork quilt of lots of those different experiences because it's a hard journey, right? And you want lots of different experiences to do it. Second, I think like nail the product market fit. This is generic, but nothing's better than customer love and early adoption, engagement, really understand the journey of not only the provider, the self-insured employer, the payer who might use your technology, but then the end user, if it's different, right? And what they need and really just nail that, right? Because one yeah. of the hardest things in healthcare is engagement. It's really hard to change behavior. And so nailing those loops that allow for higher engagement is just critical in the early stages. And it's really hard to do in healthcare. It's yeah. really hard to do. So the best companies have higher levels of engagement. And by the way, we're talking, it's this is not like engagement that you might have on Doordash. I mean, we're talking the bar is pretty low, but if you can move your engagement from 4% of a population to 10%. That's really good in healthcare. So nail that. And it relates to the final thing, which is really focus from the beginning, not just on financial ROI. Like if your customer gives you a dollar, are they going to make $3 from using your software or your service, but also what we call clinical ROI. That from the beginning, now you're not going to have Milliman underwrite your outcome study early on, but think about just as much time as you spend on the product journey, on the engagement loops, on the financial model, make sure you spend as much time on the clinical model charting out. What does best-in-class outcomes look like? What are they in the current industry? What do we want them to be? How do we get there? And also, how are we going to measure ourselves, both internally with our customers and customer studies, with outside academics, and hopefully with Milliman, to show that not only are we getting good financial ROI, but we're actually moving the needle on clinical outcomes. The best companies in healthcare do both. It takes a long time, but I encourage entrepreneurs to think about it from day one. Because that's, at the end of the day, what this is all about. Otherwise, we might as well just go start at Pinterest. But we're all doing healthcare because we want to make a difference. So spend as much time thinking about that because it's really important. And by the way, the best companies, once they have really good clinical ROI and financial ROI, that
0: stuff's liquid gold. Your stuff ain't getting ripped out. So that'd be my advice. To our listeners, you heard straight from Steve Krauss. So you got to do this. If especially if you want any funding, you better do this. But Steve, this has been awesome. For our listeners, we will be linking the full predictions in our Medium blog posts and also encourage you to check out Best Learner's website to learn more about all the awesome things you're doing in healthcare. Steve, again, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. And thanks to our listeners for joining us on this latest episode. I also want to let you all know that tickets are now on sale for the 27th Annual Wharton Healthcare Conference on February 18th to 19th. Join the conversation on our industry's most pressing issues around innovation, adoption, and social inequities. Visit whcbc.org for more information. Hope to see you all there.